Are you an entrepreneur looking to scale your venture? Do you have ideas on how to take Canadian entrepreneurship to new heights? Join more than 2,000 entrepreneurs, investors, industry, and government leaders in Ottawa on October 19th at Startup Canada Day on the Hill. Keynotes, workshops, hackathons, startup, scale-up, and skill stages, growth partner zones, and a mentor genius zone. Get plugged into the Canadian entrepreneurship community in one place, all in one day. Scale your startup and have your say through the most influential and high-impact event in Canada's entrepreneurship community. Get your tickets today to the Startup Canada Day on the Hill on October 19th. For more information, visit startupday.ca. The Startup Canada Awards recognizes excellence in Canada's entrepreneurship community. This year, we invite you to join us at one of six regional celebrations across Canada. Join us in Ottawa on August 24th, Montreal on September 12th, Kamloops September 15th, Fredericton on September 17th, Whitehorse on September 19th, and Edmonton on September 21st. And join us at the grand finale in Ottawa on October 19th as part of the Startup Canada Day on the Hill. Come celebrate alongside the movers and shakers of Canada's entrepreneurship community. Visit startupaward.ca for more information and get your tickets now. Learn how to get the most of your payments through simple, safe, and smart card transactions. Visit MasterYourCard.org forward slash Canada for tips to master small business security. Master your card with MasterCard Canada. Are you ready to plan for the future? Build the financial foundations for your business with Intuit QuickBooks Startup Foundations. Enroll in the online Startup Foundations workshop and receive a free one-year subscription to Intuit QuickBooks Online. Visit bit.ly forward slash startup foundations. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash startup foundations today to register for free. Traveling for business will never be the same. With Rogers Roam Like Home, you can now stay connected to your business just like you do at home when you use Roam Like Home with your Share Everything for Business plan. For just $5 a day in the United States and $10 a day internationally, you can use your data as you would at home and receive unlimited calling and messaging to Canadian and local numbers with no roaming charges. To learn more, visit rogers.com forward slash small business. On the show today, stepping in for Rivers Corbett is Janice McDonald, founder of The Beacon Agency and Startup Canada's ambassador for women entrepreneurship. We're so thrilled to have a dragon join us on today's show. Nicole Verkint is one of the newest dragons on CBC's Next Gen Den. She's the CEO and founder of Offset Market Exchange, a tech company that supports businesses to be more efficient, reduce costs, and reap the highest economic benefit from government procurement contracts. Nicole launched her first startup and manufacturing business selling to government when she was just 23. She founded Omex four years later at age 27. Today, she is highly involved in Canada's entrepreneurship community and even joined Startup Canada on International Women's Day 2017 to share her story with entrepreneurs and policymakers and where I got to make where I got to meet her, my new bestie. In today's podcast, we talked to Nicole about growing up in the tech industry, procurement for small businesses, and the impact of policy on Canada's entrepreneur-driven economy. 
sounds like we're going to have a lot to talk about, Nicole. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So Nicole, what do you want our listeners to take away from our talk today? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I didn't even think five years ago that I'd be asked to be doing podcasts like this, to be giving advice back to the, you know, the next generation of entrepreneurs coming through. It's amazing how fast things can happen. Um, but when I really look back at this process that I've had is it's the number one theme is that it's been unbelievably unglamorous. I mean, besides <laughs> four, 48 hours of filming Next Gen Dragon Design, which was glamorous because I had makeup artists, but everything else throughout this entire process has been extremely unglamorous. It's been um, just a lot of uh, very small, you know, in the trenches moves and maneuvers. You know, there was, you know, there's, there's just, it's all but the ground game. There's no, you know, big massive passes that happen. If you want to use a football analogy, which I know nothing mm-hmm. about, but that's <laughs> been, that's been the number one theme for me. So I think it's really important for entrepreneurs when they're getting started and for startups and across Canada to really understand is the big differentiator that I see between Canada and the U S is that in the U S they just seem to be so much more comfortable with failure. And mm-hmm. I think they really understand that this is not something that's going to be easy and it's not going to be something that's going to happen right off the bat. And there's going to be, um, like I said, a lot of unglamorous moments. So I think for everyone getting started that to me, that's the biggest message is just to hear that and understand that. And then when that happens to you and you're in that dark place going, this is so screwed up. All these people are saying (laughs) no to me. There's no way we can make it. You have to be able to say, well, this is what it's been like for everybody else. Mm -hmm. So, so the, um, the unglamorous is uh, is okay and shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, right? It, On that it, journey, it is it is the process. I don't think that I've ever met another entrepreneur. They might say it in the limelight, but when you really talk to them and you've got the drink and you're really into it, it's there was a lot of bad moments. And so mm-hmm. I think for everyone to know that it's critical that it's part of the process, and it probably means it's there's something that's working or that it's. That's really the true experience that I that I've had, anyways. Well, and I would add to it that uh, along with unglamorous is probably a ton of hard work. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so when you think about uh, your life and uh, the the sort of every day of Nicole as an entrepreneur, what does that look like? Because I think it's really helpful for uh, those that are, you know, in the startup community to understand, first of all, it tends to be really personal. Everybody's approaching it differently, but that it's also one common theme, not only the unglamorous that you mentioned, but also it's jam packed with hard work. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, my, I'm usually scheduled about a week out and then, you know, you wake up and you just look at your phone and it's like, these are all the things that are happening. And it's every 15 minutes, half an hour, there's something else. And for me, they're, they're really growth focused. So they're usually sales and strategic partnerships and, um, obviously dealing with the board and different stakeholders. So as the founder, you're going to have a lot of stakeholders and a lot of different things and balls you have to keep up in the air. Mm-hmm. But I find that a lot of founders are either raising money or growing their business. And then they're also trying to lead their teams and there's just a lot going on. So I think it's about finding that, that balance, but it's, it's going to be very busy to be able to do it all because you're usually in a race against time, which unfortunately is usually a race against cash flow and the money. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on how big of a runway you've got, that will also determine how big of a rush you're in, but you're also racing against your potential competitors. So it's, uh, you know, it's a race, but it's, it's, it's gotta be thought of as a marathon as opposed to a sprint, because I mean, if I, 
obviously still going as fast as I was in the very beginning, but you've got to be able to last. <laughs> you have to be able right. to beat this motion for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And um, I love things. To- in, sorry, an overnight success story. They're always 10 years long, if you've noticed, <laughs> right? Yeah, so true. And uh, I think it's really helpful to your focus on strategy and, and, and also just your focus that you're growth focused. I know that uh, it's, you know, in many senses, very obvious, but I think it's really helpful for our entrepreneurs listening today to understand that, you know, you are thinking about growth and sales, as you said, every day. So, you know, and competitors and, 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 but I think that's, that's really important how strategy is, is so clear in how you're growing your business. Absolutely. I, I heard a line from a friend of mine when I was getting started and she said, Nicole, sales will save all of your sins. Mm-hmm. If you have sales, you can raise money. If you have sales, you can screw something up and get sued and have the money to pay for lawyers. If you have sales, you can tear your product apart and rebuild it if it's screwed mm-hmm. up, I mean, because you have revenue and you have, that's the really the lifeblood. And so for me, I really think founders need to be very focused on sales. I love that. That's a, um, a big, huge takeaway for everybody listening. Sales, save all of your sins. You heard it here from Nicole. <laughs> so, um, you grew up in a family business called GMA. We're going to go back up, go back to your earlier days, which supplied high-tech textiles to the military. How did your upbringing in an entrepreneurial family influence where you are today? Because that's that's an interesting uh, journey, for sure, sitting, talking business, likely around the breakfast, lunch, and dinner table. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you can't discount the breakfast table education. I think it's so critical. And something I'm really passionate now about is, is trying to get entrepreneurship, and this could be even a role for Startup Canada, put into curriculums for, for young people and students in high school and trying to get, I mean, I remember my parent, my mother lending me money and I had to pay her 5% interest. I was like 12 years old, right? So this, this breakfast table education about being around it, being around the problems. Um, my mother was the controller and my father was the, the crazy engineer and the, the, you know, the CEO. And so I got to see that dynamic between the person saying, no, we can't spend this. And the person saying, well, let's build this crazy thing. And, and so I got to see that dynamic and live it. And then, you know, I, when I went to business school, I made sure that every summer I was working in different companies to give myself a, you know, an education across multiple types of organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, but then my first startup was actually in the same sector because I had grown up and just, I knew how to bid on these contracts that were, you know, for us, it was, it was the U S market. That was primarily our market, but I had this very strange niche expertise and specialization, which was just so weird for at the time I was 23 years old to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it gave me two things. First, it gave me that being around the entrepreneurship and it just seemed so normal to be failing one day and on a high and then on a low and then have these so entrepreneurship seemed normal to me. And then I got this education from just listening to it and, you know, being in the car on when the calls are on speakerphone, like consistently, you know, being driven to, you know, soccer practice or whatever. So <laughs> I, I got to understand the market, which was unique. And then I got to be around entrepreneurship, realize it was normal, but then also learn from it, which I really hope we can figure out a way to, you know, get into our school systems here. Um, so it was kind of those combination of those couple of things. And then it was, 
it was neat because when I went to start OMX, you know, I had um, a really good support system in my family because, you know, I'd go back on Sundays and I'd be doubting myself and, you know, having this problem or that problem. Oh, I remember when that happened. And, you know, two months mm-hmm. later, it all worked out. And so I think having that support system and people can find it in your friends, you know, you are who you hang around. So you can find it with your own community. But I think that's a big key. That was a big key for me is, is that all just felt normal. So we know that uh, family obviously has been a a critical support, both in what you've learned, um, but also because they're great sounding board and cheerleaders for you. But, you know, you just said um, you talked about you are who you hang out with. So, you know, what, what kind of people do you spend most of your time? Is it still the entrepreneurial tribe? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've always had an eclectic group of people and always been interested in different types of people. And I never really thought about that. And then I read an article once that it was by a, a famous entrepreneur. I can't remember who, but he, he said that he, he, he always hung around with weird people. Mm-hmm. And when I saw him describe weird, I thought that's so interesting. Cause I, I would love to hang around with someone who's off the wall and artsy. And then I, you know, I really like this group here in Toronto, the, the Canadian space commerce association, and they're all into space. And, and so there's all these different groups of people that you can surround yourself with that are different. And I think for entrepreneurs, it's about connecting those dots that are not so obviously connected. And so, you know, Steve Jobs said it, that it's about that intersection between technology and the arts. And so I think it's important to surround yourself with different people that think outside the box that are okay with not being judged because if you're in a group that's been friends since they were little and they're still friends and they don't, they don't allow other people into their, their circle and they care so much what everyone thinks about them, how are you in that social environment going to go out, start something new, get criticized for it for sure. That's the number one thing you can guarantee when you start a company is you will be criticized because you're going to be doing something original and new and different. And you might be threatening a a current way of doing something. So you got to surround yourself with people that are okay with being judged and accept you and, and are different. And it allows your brain to try to connect things that might not normally be connected. I mean, I was connecting, you know, defense and government procurement and, older school B2B processes mm-hmm. with some of my higher tech consumer applications that I was used to using that were in a different world. So they're kind of bridging those two things. So there's that. So there's kind of weird people I'll say, I hate mm-hmm. the word weird, but I'll use it. And well, then I would say, part, Nicole, I would rebrand it and say good weird. Yeah. Good weird. You know, you know, exactly. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Good weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. And then the other thing, and this is, a little cheesy, but I, I heard it somewhere where somebody says that your wealth is the combination of your five closest friends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've always hung around with sort of artsy people. And so I don't really necessarily believe that, but, but I do believe that the five closest people you hang around with have huge influence in, um, in, you know, what you talk about in what you dream about and what all those things. So I think you need to be very careful where you spend your time. And I think that if you have a certain objective and your objective is to be um, disrupting this big sector, you know, make sure you're surrounding yourself with people that can be there for you and relate to it a little bit and that sort of thing. And, and it doesn't necessarily, I get a lot of questions about mentorship. I'm probably sure you do too, mm-hmm. but I get a lot of questions about mentorship And I do believe in it, but I believe that you can learn stuff from everywhere. So these types of podcasts are great. I've, I've always read so many biographies on different 
leaders. Um, Me so, too. Right? I love Me, it. I love it. I love it. I feel like, books. yeah, it's it's uh, avoiding their mistakes. Not that you're even on their same journey, but you're like, wow, okay, that's a cool way to look at it or never thought of that or look mm. at the resiliency in their life. Or You can yeah. relate to their struggle and it, it doesn't mm. matter what era they're from. I mean, one of my favorites was a book about Gertrude Bell, the queen of the desert, right? And she's on her own <laughs> in the desert with you know, all these Arab leaders and there's, and, and she's the only woman. And there's, I love those books when you can kind of relate. So I think you can get your information from so many different places and you can get your support. So I think people shouldn't just say it's just about your five closest friends, but yeah, I like that. And I, and I also think if I go back to two comments that you made one, you know, if we go back to family and lessons learned around the table and how do we kind of normalize entrepreneurship, um, for kids to think about it as a legit, uh, pathway. And we know we need it for our economy, but, um, you know, the role of risk. And I think for you, um, and for folks that have that opportunity to be raised in that scenario, they have, I believe a higher level of comfort around risk. And when you think about your pals that maybe, don't have that, um, you know, whose parents uh, followed a different pathway. I think that's some of the the barrier to considering entrepreneurship because they they see a different path and think that it's really risky. I don't know. Does that ring true to you? Yeah, I think culture is a huge part of accepting risk. So, you know, they they wear it. I found in Silicon Valley, they wear it as a badge of honor. Like I had these two massive crashes and now I'm on my third. And so they kind of wear failure as a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Canada, I think we hide it a little too much. So I think there could be some value in, in getting people to really open up and talk about their massive failures because um, there's that in the culture. And Yes, who you're hanging around with when they say, you know, that's great, go for it, don't listen to the naysayers, that kind of stuff is good too. And then I think there's just the financial reality, right? If you if if you've got us a, a bit of a security net and we have that in Canada with with the government and, and our and some of our systems here, and they've actually I've read studies where there's higher levels of entrepreneurship in places like Denmark and some of these other countries where there's really good social security net as well, where you know that um, you know, there's some basic level healthcare and there's some basic things there for you. If you fail, I think that's another piece of it that we never talk about. Yeah, that's um, very interesting because uh, la- I think it was last month I was in Stockholm and uh, they have a really thriving tech sector. And we heard from a lot of women entrepreneurs who were sharing exactly what you've just highlighted. The ability to not have to think about who's taking care of my kids if you have if you know a young family or um, being able to pursue educa- higher education in grad school and uh, just kind of having this innovation uh, focus. And so, you know, because they have this really uh, secure safety net, if you will, it, they have seen it as a real um, impetus to innovation and startup and and tech. And they've done obviously some pretty exciting things in the tech sector. So I absolutely see so it. Yeah. So back to you, you founded and run multiple companies. You uh, oversaw the sale of GMA to a private equity firm. Uh, always exciting when you have uh, an exit. So how, and this is the kind of thing that people want to hear really about is how did you negotiate the deal? How did you know it was the right time to make the sale? What were some of those considerations? Because, um, you know, that that's an exciting time, but I'm sure a little bit of nail biting too. Well, so take us through a- it. Yeah, that was a very unique situation that um, 
I hope will not ever apply to anyone listening to the podcast, but okay. we, we had a <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> yeah. And, and I actually never talk about it, but we oh. had essentially had some very large increases in big government contracts with the U S you know, Iraq mm-hmm. and Afghanistan were both happening and we had expanded dramatically. So, um, at that point I decided to focus on the family business, um, through all of that growth and, and, uh, my company was sort of running smoothly, just doing some parts and components for the government as well. But, um, I started to focus on it and then, uh, there was a change in some of the strategy at the U S government level. And we basically, um, some of our codings got classified, sort of requiring us to be owned by an American investor. And then we also, the government had dramatically downtooled um, pretty suddenly. So we had these two things that were happening. We basically had pressure to become owned by an American. And then we had um, under a certain timeline. And then we also had a dramatic reduction in our top line. And when you deal with government, these contracts can be really lumpy and they can bring you from huge to small um, pretty mm-hmm. quickly. So, you know, went from basically four times the size to a quarter of the size over the course of four years where, you know, we had five factories, 200,000 square feet of manufacturing space, lots and lots of overhead. So our sale happened um, very quickly for both of those reasons. There was some pressure. Um, mm-hmm. The smartest thing I did, I actually was thinking about that this morning, which is so weird. But the smartest thing I did was I hired the best guy and he was not cheap, but he was responsible for, um, he did the restructuring at uh, General Motors during 2008. So mm-hmm. he knew about, you know, faster sales and some of the pressures that were happening in our timelines. And this person was just an amazing advisor. And so I worked hands in hand with with um, that individual and we were able to sell essentially a company that had factories in uh, three countries and very, very complicated contracts. And it was very, very complicated. So we, with his help, we were able to sell everything within six weeks and avoid um, difficulties. Yep. And it was different ownership, very complicated ownership. It had been in the family for over 40 years. So, um, so it was complicated, but we did it quickly and, um, it was very, very stressful. I, um, I remember, uh, sleeping on the bathroom one night almost and, uh, living off of donuts a few days. <laughs> I remember losing a lot of weight, but eating a lot of donuts. And I'm sure that was not a good combo. Um, so anyways, it was, you know, it was very good for me because of two things. One, it, it taught me that it's dangerous to get into some really big overheads when your contracts can be lumpy. It's dangerous to have a reliance on essentially one customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those were two things I learned. And then when I decided to start OMAX, all I really knew about were this government procurements and offsets. And I, but I knew I didn't want to start a company with big overheads. And so that's one of the big benefits with tech is that, you know, I didn't want to commute. I was commuting all the time. We had factories in Michigan. I was still doing the Dominican company, which was my first startup. And I was commuting to Guelph, which was the R and D headquarters from Toronto. So I was doing so much driving and so much flying. And I remember saying, I don't want to commute and I don't want big overheads. And all I know is about this. And so from there, the concept of OMX started to evolve to say, okay, let's start something that's um, lower overheads that we can scale. And um, it's just, but we leverage all that knowledge. Or I get to leverage all that knowledge that I learned during that process. So. That's amazing. It's also cool to hear you talk about um, with such clarity uh, knowing what you don't want, which is almost as important as knowing what you do want, you know? Yeah, that's so, a list. What do I not want? <laughs> 
Yeah, but I mean, that clarity really kind of allows you to to get focused on what that company could look like. And obviously, it's been tremendously successful. So um, for all you entrepreneurs listening out there, start to think about what you don't want. It's just as important. So let's talk a little bit about government uh, procurement, about the industry. Uh, You've been in this space in one way or another your entire life. And um, startups and small businesses are often uh, seen as or thought of or feel like uh, the underdogs when bidding for government contracts. So what are your top tips for entrepreneurs, not only to close the deal, but to even kind of consider uh, first steps and and how to even look at this as a possibility for growing their business, lumpy or not, you know, how do they, how, what to do? What's your advice? It's really hard. And so I think the first thing is to really understand the process. So um, there's a lot of misperceptions about how that process works. And Mm -hmm. so I think in different levels of government, there's different processes. So we sell to federal, um, provincial and municipal a little bit. And so very different processes and different levels. And then I've also sold into other governments around the world. Very, very different processes again. So I think the first thing everyone needs to do is know what is the actual process is there going to be a competitive bid? Are they writing a spec? Are you contributing to that spec? Are you, is, is it a done deal? Do you have to just quote on something that's already been baked? You know, is this a services contract where you can make your own product to deliver this? You know, are you going to be on a standing offer? There's so many different ways to do this. And so you got to know the process before you decide what your strategy is. And so that's the first thing. The second thing that I've seen most companies have success with is partnering with an existing company with really good existing relationships and existing contracts with the government. So there's a lot of large corporations, Canadian and global that already have contracts and you could be a sub to them. You could be an add on to their existing contracts. So think about where your product might fit in because it might be something that could be included within a much larger environment. That's Mm -hmm. the majority of what OMX does is we're working with the prime contractors, the original equipment manufacturers, and helping them source their subs and contractors and their innovation partners that become part of a bid or that become part of the supply chain. Um, so, and and we don't do just government, but we do we do other sectors like um, infrastructure and oil and gas and energy and offshore oil and gas because they also have requirements to report back to the government how through their supply chains they're having positive impacts on the innovation economy and the startup community and um, the local supply chains. Um, So I would say if you're trying to sell direct to the government, get very clear on what the process is. So go and meet the right person in the government. um, Try to get to a a more senior title and ask them, what is this process very clearly? Um, You you know, depending on the cash situation, you might want to hire an expert. There's lots of great consultants in Ottawa who do this for a living. And we've leveraged, um, we've, leverage the expert there too. So, um, depending on where that sits. And then lastly, I would really open your mind to, um, partnering with companies that are already on contract or on standing offer or are bidding on something and to be one of their partners, see where you fit in there. Um, but it's like any complicated, complex sale. You, You need to have multiple, you have to have a champion and then multiple supporters within the organization. And it's a complex sale and that it can take a very, very long time. So, one thing that we did is, you know, while we were waiting and, and working the government channels for government to be a client of ours, we um, had other revenue sources. So I think it's important that it's very difficult for startups 
to operate in just selling to government or just selling to large complex clients because the sales cycles can be two years, year and a half. And so if your sales cycle is that long and you've got three months of cash left or, you know, whatever your situation is, or you've got to be putting lots of progress in short periods of time, which is probably a reality, then I would say you want to have multiple streams of revenue if you can, um, Mm -hmm. and try to have, so try to have multiple streams of revenue, try to have lots of options, um, and then work government, you know, as a channel, but also you would be working with the, the tier ones, um, as well. I think it's helpful for people to understand too. It is a long process. It's not something you decide, yep, I'm going to do this tomorrow and things will just happen. So uh, I think that's really helpful to understand that these are complex processes and you have to, first of all, educate yourself. So that's an important takeaway. Secondly, you talked about that there are um, experts, uh, as you mentioned in Ottawa, that have that expertise, obviously, that can help. So where does somebody go and source these? Um, you know, do you point people, is there like a, a website, you know what I mean? Cause I know right away thinking about entrepreneurs are like, well, how do I figure out who to, who to even yeah. talk to? Well, even on the OMX website, we've got four or five uh, consulting partners that we've worked that actually help companies get into government. So there's something on, on the OMX.com in there too. I, I consultants, um, okay. but it depends what you're looking for. Like there's, there's companies that specialize in government relations, some more in PR, some just in straight procurement, some just in the defense sector. So people have their specialties. Okay. That's fantastic. I think it's really helpful. And, um, and then similarly, you know, if they're, I think it's really just uh, figuring out your network too to to learn who's in this area and who might be a good person to partner with because hearing you talk about the need for champions and and uh, et cetera, this is a complex process. So <laughs> it's not to say to be scared off, but it's to understand what you're actually signing up for, I think would, is helpful, particularly for startups. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So- uh, let's say, uh, we've got some entrepreneurs that figured this all out <laughs> and they're ready to rock. What's the impact of government procurement on startups and small businesses in Canada? And do you think that, um, you know, is, is this a, is the system working? Is it flawed? Can it be better? What does uh, Nicole, who's been in this space for a very long time and, and very successfully, what are your thoughts on, uh, on the impact of government procurement? So my experience from 10 years ago when I got started was that the Canadian system had lots of issues and lots of complications. And, and I felt that it was very flawed. We were a big Canadian success story. We were selling all over the world. We were the largest supplier of the particular thing that we did. And we sold, we were the U S military's number one choice. And the Canadian government consistently bought from our only competitor, which was Uh, a European company and they paid eight times more than the American customer paid for the same product from us. And so they were paying more money buying from an an offshore business and the specification was rigged for them. It was horrible. And so Mm. You know, I wrote a lot of letters. Um, the good news is I, bet. I wrote a lot of letters. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. When you have that's actually, food, oh, that's a, a discouraging statement, but wow. Right. It's the truth, and we should stop yeah. hiding from it because it's, mm-hmm. it's what happens all the time. I hear about it all the time. Canadian companies that can't make it in Canada until they can make it abroad. You know, there's actually, they call it the Shania Twain effect. No one wanted to even <laughs> hear Shania Twain until the Americans wanted to hear her. And <laughs> You know, OMX, OMX, who was set up to try to help Canadian companies access these opportunities, our largest 
champions and customer base are American and European users of our platform. You know, they're bidding on stuff in Canada, but also abroad, like we're selling now around the world. But Mm -hmm. in terms of getting particular people to embrace innovation, to embrace a startup concept in a more government environment, we, we had success abroad before we had Canadians, you know, start waving their hands saying we really want to adopt something like this. So Mm. look, that's the reality and that's the reputation, but that's not to say that in the last I would say three years ish, Mm -hmm. there's been a big sea change and a lot of people talking about it and new programs have been launched. Um, and you know, big desire, I believe for the Canadian government to change that and to really embrace Canadian technology and Canadian innovation. Um, you know, we just saw something in the news with Boeing against Bombardier where the Canadian government stood up and said, no, we're standing up for Bombardier. That's our Canadian company. So I think we're starting to see a big change. The best program, that we've interacted with is a program called the BCIP, uh, Building Canada Innovation Program. It's run by the small business uh, department at PSPC and the federal government in Canada. And their concept is if you're a Canadian startup and you've never sold your product to the Canadian government and you can prove you've never sold it to the Canadian government, we'll be the first buyers. And then we'll help you get the product tested within the government to try to help you then sell it to the government later. And so they, they pay you, it's a sale. They actually give you money um, for that product to be the first buyer. And so that program, in my view, is amazing and can have a really positive impact. But then what's the program after that program? So what? Mm-hmm. there's another gap now that exists from your first buy to like actually being ingrained in the procurement process and longer term sales. So, and I think they're already talking about how can they patch that. So I, I, I am very optimistic about where I think this is going to go. And I think the leaders are talking about it. So now it's about execution. That's very exciting. I think it's probably worth having you um, repeat that program because I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in, in hearing it. So can you just repeat yes, the actual program name? It's called the BCIP program. Uh, I believe it stands for Building Canada Innovation Program. Um, mm-hmm. If you go on the PSPC website, it should it's right in there. You Google it. Um, it's the BCIP program. Perfect. Okay, that's super helpful. So um, you very much, it's obvious, believe strongly in the importance of tracking the tangible impacts of policy and spending decisions on Canada's economy. Um, And you've talked a little bit about some of the things that the government is doing, like this program you just mentioned. Is there anything else you'd like to shine a spotlight on? Yeah, I can't comment on on the software systems or what the government's doing right now, but this is exactly what OMX is proposing to the government is to be the platform because we specialize in tracking the total social and economic impacts from government procurement. So um, at the top strategic level, federal government is saying they want to adopt something they're referring to as deliverology. It's um, It came mm-hmm. from uh, Tony Blair, had a consultant yep. who, who brought in it over. Okay, and, and, yep. Yeah, and the idea is basically facts-based analysis. Let's use data to see if we're doing better than we were before. I mean, it's it seems like it's obvious, but this is a great, great thing at a strategic level to say we want to make sure that we're tracking. So now it's about, you know, instead of just verbally saying, you know, these big, you know, not just companies that sell to the government, but big companies that have lots of stakeholders in the government. So energy companies, mining companies, um, 
infrastructure companies that are building roads and all sorts of things, stop saying that you will support local companies. Stop saying that you're going to do clean techie things. Why don't you track it? Why don't you actually provide the data? Why don't you, okay, you can't find a Canadian company that does this particular thing. Show us you tried, like show Mm -hmm. the data, how many RFPs you send and was it fair? And, and, you know, why did that Canadian company lose? So, you know, we have to stop being Boy Scouts in this country because if you travel all around the world and you're not local, you have a huge disadvantage in mm-hmm. in those procurement processes. So we need to start standing up for our country. And we have a we have a lot of messaging coming from the states right now saying they are going to get more aggressive in that mm-hmm. respect. So it's, you know, we need to protect our industry and our innovation. And we have a very small population. So to be a big player on the world stage. We have to be innovative and the government and government contractors and large corporations who the government is a stakeholder. They have the power to be able to have a big impact there. Well, and we've heard too that the government now has talked about their $950 million investment into five innovation super clusters across Canada. Uh, In your view, is this money well spent? I, I don't know the details exactly. My concern is if industry has to match the money and then who who has the IP. So if there's multiple sector companies in a sector coming together and they're oftentimes com- competitors, are they really going to be innovating together? Um, so from a practical perspective, I think I think um, from a high level, it makes a lot of sense. There's lots of research that's saying that super clusters, um, you know, they end up forming naturally because there's different parts of the economy that end up working in certain areas for different reasons. So there's lots of research that says that uh, they are the key to success. So I do think that it makes a lot of sense. I think um, it needs to, the ROI has to be there for industry. So industry is going to look at it and they're going to say, if I have to put in, if I have to match the funding one-to-one and then I have to share the outcomes, I'm not sure exactly what, um, what that says. But my, my biggest thing for the super clusters is that we hope that some of these super clusters will be open to actually wanting to track and report on the social economic benefits that come mm-hmm. out of that work. And so that's, that's where we believe our place is. Um, and so it'll, to me, it's like anything, ideas are wonderful. It's all about how they get executed and who's held accountable for, for what in that process. So I just hope that, um, they get executed in a certain way that it generates real, real benefits to Canada. Well, I think that makes a, a ton of sense. <laughs> I yeah. just, I, I just like everything you're saying, Nicole, you're inspiring <laughs> us here today. Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time where we need to take a very quick break, but we'll be right back with more from our amazing guests. Stay tuned. As an entrepreneur, you're always looking for ways to work smarter, faster, simpler, and better. Grow your business your way with transformative tech like Microsoft Azure, Office 365, Windows 10, and more. Visit modernbiz.ca, that's modernbiz.ca, and see how Microsoft can help you run your business anytime, anywhere. Canadian-born business One by Sun creates and sells a unique collection of printed yoga mats, tote bags, pouches, and prints 
From original hand-painted designs to customers across Canada, the United States, and Australia. When their products are out for delivery, it's important for their customers to have total visibility to ensure their packages are delivered on time, no matter where their customer is located. UPS Canada helps customers track their shipments 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, while co-owners Evangelina and Jamal can focus on growing their business. Join the UPS Small Business Program to get support on your unique supply chain needs. Plus, save 40% off shipping. Visit ups.com forward slash my business. Thank you to our sponsors, and we're back. So, a couple of other questions I'd like to cover with you. Because you talked about how we need uh, to get more comfortable celebrating our failures and how certainly um, in the Valley, that's a, you know, that's a badge of honor. So for you, what is the failure that you're most thankful for or proud of or willing to talk about here today? Well, you know, the, the, I never did talk about sort of the fast fire sale of the family business um, before this podcast, actually. So I think I think it's important that I say that it's it's something that I, I, I should celebrate what I learned out of it. So I think it's important people do that. But the other big failure that I had that I talk about frequently is the moment I almost gave up on OMX was when I had been denied uh, venture capital funding for the 300th time. And I remember mm-hmm. you know, that was a very rough night for me when I went home because I thought this is it. You know, I had to look friends and family in the eye who provided some initial angel funding and this isn't going to work. I can't get my venture capital money. And so that seemed to me to be the biggest failure. Um, It's very difficult for any entrepreneur to get venture capital funding at an early stage in Canada. It's we, we know the data that, that women get less than 2% of venture capital money total. We know that it is. So it's venture capital. It's very, very difficult to get. Um, So I was very upset that felt like a huge failure, but when I look back now, I'm so grateful for not getting, it. It forced me to get closer to customers. It forced me to generate revenue as quickly as possible. It forced me to keep a lot of options open. I've now been able to keep control of the business, which is good for the long-term vision and a lot of other reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. It's forced us to be scrappy throughout. And so, you know, we didn't spend a thousand dollars to attend a conference unless we knew there was payback and everybody had to calculate it. And so it forced us to stay very, very um, diligent on what really mattered, which was customers and revenue and sales. So yeah. um, it seemed like a huge failure at the time. It was definitely the moment where I wanted to give up. Um, but when I look back, I'm really glad that, that it worked out that way. I think that's probably very humbling for a lot of people to hear because you've had such tremendous success that you too face that crossroads of, oh, well, throw in the towel. But obviously you didn't. So, um, you know, what, you know, what you're clearly resilient, what made you, um, or what did you say, or who helped you kind of, you know, the sun comes up the next day and I'm back in the game. How, how did you do it? Like there was no one moment. That's been the big theme of my, of all of this. And, you know, I never had an aha moment about starting OMX. I never had a moment where I said, well, then th- because of this, I'm going to keep going. It just, when I look back, it just, the sun just did kept coming up. You know, we, we were still alive. I remember when that VC thing happened, I had four weeks of cash left and I thought, okay, well, I better give people notice pretty soon because we're bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend and he thought that we were really well capitalized <laughs> and he mm-hmm. said, you know, I don't have a lot of money, but if you want, I'll throw, you know, five or 10 K in just as an angel, you can put it on a convertible note and we'll just see what happens. And it was just a friend I went to university with and, you know, it's not like he was a big angel investor. He just sort of believed and, and that got us another 
I think, mm-hmm. you know, two weeks and you just buy yourself <laughs> more time and then you can, you know, you have to have lots of options going. And so that was for me, there was never one moment. It was like still alive, still alive, still alive. <laughs> you know, I'm the last one off the it's ship. Amazing. So as yeah. long as the ship is still sort of going, then we're going to keep going guys. So, and what about biggest lessons you've learned as a founder and CEO? Because, um, Uh, Certainly, I know you have so many and you've shared all, uh, you know, just your journey and it's been exciting to hear, but what would be some key takeaways that you've learned and you think would be helpful for uh, those aspiring uh, entrepreneurs or or those that are, you know, they're right in the midst of startup. Maybe they're thinking of throwing in the towel. (laughs) Uh, What do they need to know from Nicole? It's a marathon. I mean, it's, it's all about enduring a huge amount of pain over a long period of time. And whenever you learn, yeah, right. Isn't that so wonderful? Whenever yeah, you that's learn, why you want to sign up for it. <laughs> whenever you learn the first lesson, right. So I learned the VC lesson and then I went on and I had a great, I actually did have one great mentor that was sort of forced on me that I'm really grateful for. And I remember coming to him and I had gotten through the first thing, you know, you, you kind of feel like you're playing one of those nineties video games. Like, you know, you get the star, then you get the mushroom, <laughs> then you get this and you got to go get that thing too. Right. So it's like, you got to keep getting these things. And so I get through the first thing I turn to my mentor, I go, why is this new thing now happening? Like, why do I have a new hard thing? And he yeah. goes, you know, that's what it is. You you get over the first hard thing and then you get the new yeah. hard thing. And so there's lots of challenges with getting your company started. There's lots of challenges with hiring. There's lots of challenges with scaling. There's lots of challenges with then servicing big customers, lots of challenges trying to get government. Then it, And now I'm in exporting around the world mode, which brings all these new challenges. So I just think that you need to be very aware of that and actually be okay with the journey and not constantly hear a lot of entrepreneurs talking about the quick exit and they just mm-hmm. think about the exit. You know, imagine if you ran them four hour, I run over four hour long marathons. <laughs> imagine you <laughs> ran a marathon the whole time you thought about the finish line. You know, you can't, you have to enjoy all that pain. <laughs> yeah. And tell me this, what, um, uh, what's the role of innovation in, uh, in your company? How do you approach it? Um, how does it play out in, in what you do? Is it a culture thing? Is it a strategy yeah. piece? How, how no, does that a, play? I think that's a great question because we hear the word innovation so often now in the community and in Canada and everyday people are hearing about innovation funding. They don't know what it is. You know, for me, most innovation comes from adaptations. It comes from small incremental changes. It comes from listening to your customers. It comes from, you know, trying a whole bunch of things. And so Yes, it's definitely in our culture, for sure. Every person that joins our company is obviously all about innovating, but we don't really use that word. I just think we listen to people, we evaluate if we should try something, and then we usually try everything. But then we cut it off pretty quickly if we see it's a failure um, and we see we can't we can't get to revenue because of it. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're looking at new sectors. But when we look at new sectors, we bring in an anchor client and we get them to help us um, build it or help fund it or, you know, give us lots of feedback. So I think that we're doing all those things at the same time, which is trying things, which is agreeing that we'll back out, you know, within a few months if we've, you know, cut your losses, not be too married to something. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this constant process. It's very messy. 
Um, it involves a huge amount of collaboration, a huge amount of sharing information. You know how many entrepreneurs in very early stages I hear, I'm not telling you my idea. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, well then, you know, good luck you, with that. <laughs> you innovate that way. You got to tell your users, you got to tell your other stakeholders, potentially even competitors, you got to get out there and be trying stuff and talking about it and failing and collaborating and all that stuff. So it's a very messy process, but a lot of it is, um, I believe it's adaptation. I mean, the entire business of OMX is taking a niche sector and then adapting technologies we saw in other sectors to our sector. And there's, you know, it's a huge, there's a huge amount of money on the table still in B2B. You can't say just because something was invented. So there's, there's lots of areas where we can innovate in Canada where you don't have to come up with a new spaceship model or you don't have to be Einstein and develop this new formula that reshapes how we think about gravity. I mean, there's a huge amount of innovation that happens in sectors that are less sexy. There's a huge amount of innovation that happens from just tweaking something and thinking about something differently or taking something and applying it to a new industry. So that's, that's how I see innovation. I see it in this, you know, sort of messy, you know, non-sexy world. Well, two things that struck me in what you were sharing. One, um, there's clearly a comfort level around failure. So, you know, you're, you, you tell your team and you look at things like, Hey, we're going to try this and it's okay if it doesn't work out or it's not the way we imagined that. So that's pretty exciting, right? And you're failing fast. If I'm hearing you correctly, you know, that didn't work. Let's cut our losses and go. But the other thing that I thought would be really helpful for entrepreneurs to hear is around this idea, how you, you talk about getting that, um, you know, that anchor client to help you. So can you just expand on that? Cause I think a lot of, you know, it's, we think about it in terms of real estate, the anchor tenant and, you know, so there's kind of other uses, but can you just kind of, uh, for startups, imagine how they might be able to apply that? Yeah. I mean, you've got to, you've got to try to find some people and this is a lot of networking and this part's really messy too, but you have to try to find some people, who are open to using your, your platform or your ideas and, you know, in exchange for feedback and being the ones to beta it and try to test it, you know, they like get to use it for free or, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that's the type of stuff we did. We built an advisory board of a dozen of the, the industry leaders, got them to provide us feedback, got them to help us, um, uh, design the product when the product was live, they felt like it was really theirs. You know, you just bring them on to start using it. If you get to use their logos, like, you know, for us, mm-hmm. Lockheed Martin has been a big anchor client in the defense sector. So we get to use their logo. They helped us design it. They helped fund some some of the features. And then you go on from there and, and start selling to other companies in the sector. And then I wish I could say um, I could talk about my new project because, you know, entrepreneurs are always thinking <laughs> so far. Ahead, the next I'm on thing. to something yeah. right now. That I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited about it. And it's within OMX, but it's um, a new application for doing something else within our sector, which is just so exciting because um, we basically had a customer say, have you ever thought of this? This could be an add on. It could have a huge impact. And so I think if you're constantly um, open to those ideas then they're, they're going to come out, but you got to work alongside the user base. You can't sit in a basement or a garage or whatever these glamorized entrepreneur locations are. You can't sit (laughs) in that place by yourself and build a great product. I don't believe in that. 
So we heard it here first. You've got some new hot, sexy product. We don't know what it is, but the big takeaway, but we will eventually, you'll share it with us. But the big takeaway really is this idea of uh, being a really good listener and being really tightly connected to uh, your customer base because now you've got this new line of business. So when you talk about entrepreneurs saying, I'm not going to share my bold idea, um, you can see the limitations of that because, uh, yeah, what is that research that talks about when you're having that idea, somebody else? has it, you know, in about five other places in the world. <laughs> oh, so. absolutely. All right. So horses, tell me about this love. Cause, uh, I see you riding a horse all the time on Instagram. <laughs> so. That is so funny. <laughs> so I, I need, I, I need to up, know about this passion. I grew up on a horse farm, um, in Caledon an hour, just over an hour outside of Toronto. Um, you know, we, we had a race horse, we did a three day eventing, we did all sorts of stuff. So I was in love with horses growing up. And then when I left home, I did my final year high school abroad and then I went straight to university. And I gave it all up and, mm. uh, dropped it. So I haven't touched horses since I was probably 17, 18. Um, and then all of a sudden, literally out of the blue last summer, I, um, got back on, started doing a few things. And then it was just like a rush of blood. Like I need to do this. So I've been spending every single weekend <laughs> and two nights a week when I'm around outside of the city. Um, and uh, yeah, I have a horse. His name is free and clear, you know, bought without debt. <laughs> I love that. Jumps. And, um, yeah, like I, you know, it's funny though, because it's a very humbling sport and, you know, I thought I was quite good when I was 18 and I went into my first competition here, um, near Toronto and I crashed right through the first jump. The poles were going everywhere. Like apparently it was this colossal noise that was heard across the, (laughs) and then, you know, just, you get to get back on the horse. Like, is this an analogy or what? And then you get back in the ring and you go again. So, um, and I'm pretty sure you've, you've had the occasional little ribbon and badge there. Oh yeah. Yeah, so it's so it's in parallel with your business success, isn't that those something? Are, those are expensive ribbons. Yeah, but hard earned, right? Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to be doing the dog and pony show. It's going to be televised <laughs> in Ottawa, a, where oh. you go and you jump. Uh, it's like a meter fifteen, so it's pretty pretty high for me, about four feet. And you do this class, and then the super dog you get you pick a super dog, and the super dog goes behind you, and the combined score wins. Oh my gosh. When is this? I am coming to see you in action. Middle this of July. is fun. Okay. It's on. This is amazing. Nicole, you are an inspiration. You are a tremendous entrepreneur and you're also very generous with your expertise. So thank you so much for joining us here today on Startup Canada and sharing all of your insights. Thanks for having me and, and kudos to what you guys do. You guys do great work. So thanks so much. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Canada podcast, a show dedicated to unlocking the entrepreneurial potential of every entrepreneur with access to inspiring stories and tangible lessons to help you run your business. Want access to resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca for the latest startup community news and upcoming events like our popular startup chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Until next week, thank you for listening. And now we leave you with a sneak peek of next week's episode. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's George Strombolopoulos, and you're listening to the Startup Canada Podcast Show. 
So, you know, you've done a lot of stuff from that in the, in the social impact side of life. And this, you know, we talk about pressure and, you know, the, uh, the kids that are out there right now, you know, the ones that are happiest in your experience, the ones that are loved. And, and I was definitely loved. Um, and the ones that are, are, that really don't work are pressured. How is your, what is your feeling? I mean, you, you know, you've done, uh, you know, the, the, you've been the national ambassador, first, first Canadian national ambassador against hunger for the UN's World Food Program, uh, helped Canada for Haiti raise more than $20 million. Um, what's, what do you feel is the obligation or pressure that businesses, entrepreneurs should have at any time in their career for helping to give back that have that social impact? Here's another example of where I'll be very unpopular with some people, Rivers. <laughs> I think it is your absolute responsibility. This idea that you know people say, oh, you have to be true to yourself. No, that is not true. You have to be true to us. You know, you have to be, you got to be there for others, especially if you've been given the gift to kind of make a living at something you love. People who run businesses get so many tax breaks, so many. And the bigger the company, the bigger the tax break you generally get. You know, give something back, be better, be stronger. You know, one of the organizations I work with, which is uh, Prince Charles's uh, charities, it's the Prince's Charities in Canada. One of, uh, one of the reasons I lined up with them was because my old neighborhood, uh, or one of them I used to live in in Toronto was called Rexdale. And Prince Charles, who I'm certain has never been to Rexdale, him and his, but but maybe he has, his, his people, like his great organization in Canada, identified that there are certain neighborhoods where it would be really, really good and powerful and impactful if you could help show kids how to get a job. But what I mean is, what's an interview like? What's an interview process like? How would you even begin to apply? Like, you know, those grassroots sorts of things? This is the kind of work that that, that he's doing, and they came to me with that, and I said, I'm most certainly gonna be a part of this. Because um, it's your responsibility to, you know, you, you have to be there, I think. You have to be there for other people, and if you've been blessed or, or lucky or however you roll, to not be betrayed by your brain chemistry, to not get a, a bad charge from a stupid mistake when you were a kid by a cop and suddenly you've lost your right to work in this. You know what I mean? If you just, even if you got one of those records, there's just so many people out there who are doing meaningful work. You should be, you should, you know, we should follow their leads. And I think that social activism to me is just, is, is not anything that, it's like not like I'm doing anything extra. It's just part of my DNA. My mother is a missionary. Like this is, I don't do it under the auspices of the Lord. That's not my thing. But um, but I respect anybody who, who gets out there and fights for others. You have to be a voice for the voiceless and protect those who need protection. And moreover, you have to be an ally to those who need an ally. You just have to. 